So last week uh, we started a new topic talking about some of the, the roles, the legal roles that Jesus holds. And we're um, going through this whole year looking at the titles of Christ. And, and one of the things we mentioned, and it's going to kind of be a little bit different this week, but um, we talked about the difficulties of language. If you go back a few, maybe a month or two ago, we talked about job descriptions that are... Um, really obscure, and, and how sometimes those jobs, job descriptions are obscure because people want to feel a little bit uh, uh, more important about their role. They might have a kind of a role that doesn't seem so, so big, so important, so they dress it up with a nice title. And we're not talking about that. Sometimes job titles are uh, obscure or because the language has become outdated. For example, like a haberdasher. A haberdasher, a haberdasher. Uh, some positions are no longer necessary, like a haberdasher, and some job descriptions only survive in our language because they're fun to say, like haberdasher. <laughs> I actually had to look up what a haberdasher was, and I'm, I'm not sure how many times I'm going to say haberdasher in this sermon. That'll probably be the last one. But, but sometimes job descriptions are obscure because of the language. Our language has changed. And so we read things in the Bible and, and um, uh, we, don't, we don't always understand what they mean. What are these words? And we went through some Greek words. And what, what do these words mean? Um, and so talking about things that are intentionally ambiguous is, is one type of job description. But sometimes just the... the the, the language of a, a job or, or the, lang- the language that we speak no longer accurately describes the job being performed. I'll give you an example. Um, at some point in time, I'm not sure exactly when it was in my life, that I became aware of things beyond Matchbox cars and G.I. Joes and all that, right? I'm not sure if I was like in high school. Not, I can't remember when it was. Um, no, but... but uh, as I, I moved into this area where I heard things and I was no longer just in my little world, um, you hear things and you try to fit them into an understanding based on what you know. And so I'm not sure when it was that I heard the phrase Secretary of State. No reference I'm a little kid playing with matchbox cars and I, I hear this phrase. And so, so I'm trying to piece together what that phrase means. Well, what do I know? I'm a kid, probably about 9 or 10, we'll say. What do I know? Well, my mother was a secretary. She worked in a public library. So I know what a secretary is. He's a guy who takes notes, or a lady who takes notes. And I know what a state is. State. I lived in the state of Massachusetts. So I know what a secretary of state is. A secretary of state is the guy or girl that takes the notes for the governor. Right? That's very logical to a little kid. And we sometimes do that when we read the Bible. and We just assume certain things mean certain things because of the way that it fits into our world. And we, we might read a, a Bible statement and we go, huh, there it goes. And, and this happens really if you read the King James. It really happens a lot because that's 400-year-old words. That are being used, and it doesn't always fit into the way we think. And so we're going to go back to our text that we read last week, and we're going to look at a different title of Christ. Uh, And we're going to see this. We're going to back up a little bit. We read Hebrews uh, 9, verse 15 through 17 last week. We're going to back up a little bit in the same text. 
And he says, when Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, that is not one made with hands, to say, of this building or construction, and he didn't come by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered into the holy place once, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies and purifies the body, well, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, which, who offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, or New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of transgressions that were under the First Testament, those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. We talked a little bit about Testament and covenant, and um, I'll tell you that, that those are some difficult words. And, and they're, not, they're very hard to nail down, because one of the things is just their legal system is so different from us. It, it, we try to put and pigeonhole things in, and it doesn't quite work exactly. So we want to look at this concept of a mediator. What does a mediator do? And so we might have a, a slightly different understanding of a mediator than what was intended. Uh, so, well, the word just means a go-between. Well, that's kind of obvious, a mediator, medium, right? We get that sense of being between things, in the middle. And so... A mediator necessarily implies two parties, which Paul writes, and, and we get this idea. There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So, <clears throat> so we get this idea, and, and we have kind of this loose concept of a mediator, uh, the implication is not simply two parties, but it's two parties at odds, right? We understand that there's this mediator and there's two parties and we've got to get them at the table so that something can be rectified and so a third party has to intervene. And this is where things get dangerous. Because of our limited knowledge, this is where we start, secretary, I know a secretary and state, I know a state. Right, this is where we start doing this if we just think of the words and the way we use words and the way we use these situations and think of these situations. Uh, because, as we talked about, this is not a typical arrangement. He is not there for arbitration. Right? We talked about that. This is not, uh, this is not where, where you know, God and, and, and uh, we are trying to make this agreement together as equal parties. We talked about that last week. We're not going to re-preach that. So this is not for arbitration, right? We think of arbitration now. There's sports arbitration. There's union arbitration. There's all these things where, where two groups are at odds and someone says, all right, you're going to come so far and you're going to come so far and we can get back to work and, you know, and various things. That's not what this is. Because if we just think of a mediator in that sense, we're going to get the wrong idea of Christ's role and we're going to get the wrong idea of God. Right? Um, so... Um, one of the things that, that, before we get to Galatians here, the dangerous assumption in this is that um, it treats God as a party at fault. 
As though he has a, a partial responsibility in this being at odds with one another. God's not at fault. We're the party at fault. And so God is not in arbitration with us. And so um, I do want to explain one thing from last week before we get too far. And that there are some difficulties. And we talked about a testament. And one of the difficulties in the words that we talked about um, is that, um, well, what is this mediator? And what, or what is this testator? And, and what, is, what does all this mean? Um, is it a will? Is it a covenant? Is it a contract? Is, what, what is all this stuff going on? Because we read our text, wills don't have mediators, right? Someone writes out their will, you die, right? So, so why is Christ becoming, uh, if that is actually a last will and testament like we said last week, why is there a mediator? Wills don't need mediators, right? It's solved, there it is. This is yours, this is yours, this is my last will. Well, and that's a problem. Um, However, I don't know of any other covenants that need the death of somebody for it to go into effect. So we kind of have this problem with our language, right? So it's a little difficult. And I think the best explanation is that this agreement or arrangement between God and man is unlike any other. This is pretty much, Paul is like grasping at human concepts to try to relay some different things. So he kind of uses a little bit from here and a little bit from here to try to explain this arrangement between God and man, that he wants us to, to have this relationship. And so he's using different pictures. It's like a covenant in some ways. It's like a will in other ways. If we try to make all the details fit perfectly, we're going to mess up and we're going to start fights. Because right? I like to use this word for this thing. And I, I think it should be spoken this way. And, and that's how a lot of arguments get started. In fact, Paul told Timothy to avoid those types of arguments over words and details like that. It doesn't really produce much. We're just trying to get some basic concepts. So let's get to Galatians. And in this passage, we see that the Old Testament is really an illustration for the New Testament. He says, to give a human example, brothers, when a man-made covenant, uh, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. I mean, you both sign on a, an agreement or an arrangement. You can't go in and say, okay, by the way, you have to do this. Nope. Try doing that. It won't work in a court of law. So he says, uh, so he talks about this arrangement, this covenant with Abraham. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to his offsprings. This is just a covenant between Abraham and God. So it doesn't refer to many, but it just refers to one. That is, to your offspring, who is Christ. And this is what I mean. The law came 430 years later, does not annul a covenant that was previously ratified by God, so as to make the promises empty. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? What was the purpose for the law? Well, it's added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is just one. 
Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Man, there's a lot in there. There is a lot in there. As you can see, Paul was a legally trained mind. He knew the law. And he uses this picture masterfully. If only we had the mind of Paul to be able to decipher what he said. He is so, so deep. It's like, I kind of try to make sense of it the best I can. We were talking in class this morning. Understand that Paul went to the finest college that existed and studied under the finest professor, and he graduated at the top of his class. So it's difficult for us to understand the law. Um, God makes a covenant with Abraham. You get that? That's pretty simple. And it refers to the coming of Christ. But this is what's important, is that covenants are based on a... um, based on promises. That's what covenants are. The basis of a covenant is a promise. So in this case, it needs further explanation. We read that passage. Let me back up here um, to this verse. He says, it needs needs more. The law didn't take out of existence. It didn't say, okay, we're getting rid of that old covenant. What happened was, it needed further explanation. It was added because of transgressions. In other words, this is still the same thing. This covenant, this promise with Abraham is still the same thing. The law doesn't get do away with that. It was just added because human beings needed more explanation. That is, they needed more explanation than Abraham did. We'll get to that in just a little bit. And so he goes and he talks about the intermediary. Well, who's the intermediary? It's Moses. Moses goes up and gets the law. And he comes down with the law. Moses is not there to bring God down and say, God, we've got this problem between you and these people. So we need to kind of meet halfway in between and figure out how people can get along with you and how you can get along with people. Moses is there. This, this whole thing is merely a meeting for the purpose of explanation. Right? Their presence there was to receive an explanation. This is what God wants. This is how the covenant that I made with Abraham, this is what it's supposed to look like. So now we want to know the mediator. We know a little bit of what... a to expect from the mediator. So to know the mediator, we need to know why we're at the table. Kind of like those people needed to know why they were at the table. We've established that we are not there as negotiators. We come with no contract demands. We are at the table because we are at odds with God. (coughs) Much like the Jews who had to be taught how to be in compliance with the covenant. Hebrews 12, verses 22, again, you'll notice we're in Hebrews, written most likely by Paul. 
He says, you've come... To, this is a lengthy verse, and I only want the last bit of it, but it's all one sentence. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and the festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God and the judge of all, and to the spirits and the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better, or a better word than the blood of Abel, or than that of Abel. That is, um, I should have taken that. It, that is an inaccurate translation, and I want to get to that. The word then the blood is not in the original, and we're going to explain why. Uh, that that's, has, uh, that is an interpretation. It literally means uh, it sprinkled, uh, you, you've come to the uh, sprinkled blood that speaks better than Abel. Uh, Abel being the man who was killed by his brother following a sacrifice. And that is the first thing that we want to talk about. And that's important to get this right. Uh, because he, the concept that he's trying to teach is that he brings a better sacrifice. Christ came with a better sacrifice. He goes back before Moses' lot. He goes all the way back. What's the significance of Abel? The significance of Abel is not being killed by his brother. That's not the significance. The significance of Abel was in the sacrifice he brought. The sacrifice that, that he brought is this, this beginning, or, or at least the first mention of it in our, in our Bible, concerning animal sacrifice for sins. And starting from the very beginning, God has accepted, all through their history, animal sacrifice for sin. That's this basis of this, this arrangement between the very beginning, even before Abraham. Uh, he begins be, this, this connection following the sin of Adam and Eve to, to try to repair the relationship between man who's fallen from, from grace. And so he says, he comes with a better sacrifice. It, it, it's better than the blood. Even, even Abel's innocent sacrifices, it's this pure-hearted sacrifice that he brings, unlike Cain's. The blood of Christ's sacrifice is better than that. It's not about Abel's death himself. It's about the sacrifice, the animal sacrifice that he brought. Christ's blood speaks better than Abel. Um, some of you recognize this. This week we commemorated the 75th anniversary of Normandy. Interestingly enough, this is just a tidbit I ran across in, in reading up on this, this year will mark the first year in history when there are fewer people, fewer veterans alive from World War II than those than the number that actually died. This will be the first year, which is approximately 400,000. Our national conversations that we have are so focused on our small, tiny little problems that for a day, I, I suppose, our, our, our thoughts became bigger as people who had real problems. 
And people crossed the channel and, and knew as they got out that they were going to be killed. I'm talking about specifically the first wave. By the end of the day, it was pretty much routine. But So much so that um, they had people in the boat with a gun. And the order was, if you don't get out of the boat, they shoot you. Imagine having that job. People, and they said no shots were fired by those people. They didn't have to do it. If these people got out of the boat, every one of them. And they ran to a beach and saw people die in front of them, next to them. And did it anyway. Then they they got onto a beach and then they tried to scale a wall straight up. Our, our problems are so small. Uh, uh, really. What do, we, what do we have as the major problems? This is a problem to them. This is, this is their life. We forget men who sailed in tin cans to jump out in the water and climb a cliff. to liberate a country. But we forget a much more significant... Much much like God says, Christ's death makes Abel pale in comparison. We take half an hour, an hour of our time out of our week, our busy weeks with our problems, with the traumas of our of our lives that pale in comparison to the fact that a man walked up a hill knowing what was coming. Knowing what was coming, this man walked up a hill to liberate a world. It is the blood that speaks better than any other blood in history. He is a better sacrifice. Know the mediator. That's what he did. He's more than a better sacrifice. He says, As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. He says, Listen, if the first covenant was great, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want another one, right? Anytime there's a contract dispute, someone's, why? What? Someone thinks they got a raw deal in the last one. We want it better. We're, we're holding out. We're going on strike. We're doing this. We want better. We want more things, this, that. The other said, no, 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 no. We're, we're locking you out because we want this and we think we got gypped the last time. He says, listen, if there was a better covenant, if the law was great, if it was perfect, if everyone thought it was great, no one would have been looking for another one. You got the golden goose. But God says, nope, I got something better. I've got better promises. He says that there's a better ministry. The, the service of Christ was better because it was acted on better or enacted on better promises. 
Well, I guess that begs the question, what were the promises? Well, under the first covenant, they had a promise of limited relationship with God. By limited, what I mean is that God said, once a year we do the sacrifice, and for that day, until you sin again, I'm at peace with you. How long does that take? Less than 24 hours? It's like, hey, we're at one with God. By the end of the day, like, 365 more days to wait for the next day. A limited relationship was the great thing that they had. They had exclusionary grace. Exclusionary grace. What I mean by that is it was limited to a to a, a small group of people. There's a deer out there. Okay. Sorry. They had a national homeland. Wow. We have Palestine. We have, we have this great thing that's ours. We're going to fight over it for the next millennia, or two, or three. Wonderful. We have temporary atonement. I brought a sacrifice. Wonderful. I've got to do it again the next time I make a mistake. These are the great promises of the Old Testament. This is... Christ came to bring a better arrangement. The capacity of Jesus' service is more substantial than Abel, Moses, Abraham, all of them. Because he brings eternal life. He brings a continual relationship. He brings unlimited membership in this. You do notice that the one thing that these verses from Hebrews don't mention, he says, they're enacted on better rules. We got better rules. It wasn't about rules. It never was about rules. That's what we read. The rules were added. That's not the covenant. The covenant wasn't the rules. We focus on the rules and the do's and the don'ts. That's not what the covenant was. The law was never a replacement for the agreement between Abraham and Moses. They're not really the terms of what God wanted. And the secret is in Abraham's character. There were no rules, really, other than circumcision. When, when, when God spoke to Abraham, do you know why there were no rules? Why they had to be added 400 years later? Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 to 8 says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then it was... Those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. Abraham didn't need a list of rules. That's why God didn't give him any. Abraham was a man of faith. He was not a man of rules. And he was a man of desire. He wanted to make God happy. He didn't need rules are for rule breakers. 
And that was not the character of Abraham. Abraham didn't need to do Now you go and clean your room. Now you go and do this. Now you go and do that. Now, you, now it's time to do this. Every dragging Abraham. Okay, Abraham, now it's time to go to... He was a man who wanted to make God happy. And when the time came in the covenant for people who no longer wanted to make God happy, out of their own desire, God says, we have to add some rules. Because you don't get the concept of the covenant. So we have to explain things more clearly. We are children of a new covenant. And in that covenant, we are supposed to be like children of Abraham who desire through our faith to make God happy. Know the mediator. Know your place at the table. It's to receive a promise and to make God happy. We leave off with, with one Challenge. Have I accepted the terms? Have I accepted the terms? There's promises, there are terms. The fact is that sometimes we do need to be explained some things. And Christ came to explain some things. We talked about His will. And then the apostles had to explain things a little bit more detail than that. And that's what the New Testament is. But it's an arrangement to be people of faith and to know that someone did something incredible, dramatic, to give us an opportunity to no longer be at odds with our God.